Robert Wagoner is a passionate and experienced lucid dreamer. He's a past president for the International Association for the Study of Dreams and is currently a co-editor of the online magazine, The Lucid Dreaming Experience. He's written two books on the topic, Lucid Dreaming, Gateway to the Inner Self, and Lucid Dreaming, Plain and Simple, Tips and Techniques for Creativity, Insight, and Personal Growth. This is my second conversation with Robert. If you'd like to watch the first, please follow the link in the description. We hope you enjoy the episode and have a lucid dream tonight. Thank you for coming back and doing this with me again, Robert. Really appreciate that. To, to get us started today, could you please give a definition of lucid dreaming for those that may be unaware or, or not that familiar with it? So, so there's a basic definition that lucid dreamers use is that a lucid dream is any dream in which you realize within the dream you're dreaming. You literally know, hey, this is a dream. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Simple as that. Just realizing it, that you're dreaming. It's really as simple as that. There, there's a more formal definition by the American Psychological Association that a lucid dream is any dream in which the dreamer is aware that he or she is dreaming and may be able to influence the progress of the dream narrative. That, mm. That's a more formal definition. But again, it's that realization, you know, you're in a dream. Yeah. And, and so there's no, yeah, there's no, uh, you don't need to be influencing that dream or you don't need to be able to, because some people I think realize they're dreaming, but don't necessarily have the ability in that moment to influence it. So that's not necessary for it to be a lucid dream. Well, when you become lucidly aware, then you have the capacity to decide what you want to do. And, and so you might want to influence the dream. You might want to observe, you might want to do any number of things. And, and so you're right. Uh, it, it's the whole spectrum. Uh, it, but the fundamental thing is the realization that, hey, this is the dream. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, maybe later on, I'm going to ask you for a few quick tips and things like that. But in our last conversation, we spoke in much more detail about how to, and you gave like a, I think a 15 minute kind of beginner's guide to lucid dreaming, which was great. And I think a couple of people like commented on that saying it helped them to, to get lucid. Um, so if anybody wants a lot more advice, go and check out my first conversation with Robert. Um, but for now, I'll ask you, what, what would you say are the benefits um, of lucid dreaming and, and what's the potential with it? So uh, as a beginner, most lucid dreams are just fun. You fly yeah. around, you talk to dream figures, you go through walls, you walk on water, you, you do all sorts of crazy and wild things. And so initially it just seems like, oh, this is kind of a virtual reality where I can have fun inside my own head. But as you go deeper into lucid dreaming, you realize that there's about five or six benefits. One would be you can access deeper levels of creativity when you're consciously aware within the dream. The next thing I'd say is that you can deal with uh, emotional issues. So some psychotherapists use lucid dreaming to help people who have recurring nightmares, for example. But lucid dreamers have also used lucid dreaming to resolve phobias to resolve anxiety to deal with obsessions and bad habits and, and so there's a whole lot of things you can do there another benefit would be physical i'm, I'm going to say modifying uh, physicality in, in terms of promoting physical health you can do that from deep within the lucid dream and there's some wonderful examples and then i would say moving on there's um, engaging a larger awareness where you ignore the dream figures and just shout out a question to your unconscious mind, if you will. And then finally, uh, there's kind of the uh, spiritual growth and, and 
kind of eye-opening aspects of lucid dreaming as you continue to go deeper. Uh, not only can you, will you grow spiritually, I think, but also you can perform spiritual practices within a lucid dream, like you can meditate within a lucid dream. You can uh, ask to experience uh, spiritual experiences in lucid dreams and have your mm -hmm. mind blown. So it's really an open platform. Whatever you want to focus on, whatever you want to explore, you can do it in a lucid dream. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's pretty comprehensive. But I suppose there's some other elements as well that like you, you'd have to spend hours probably mentioning every single individual like benefit. Because I remember last time we spoke that you can like train, practice things in your lucid dream and stuff like that. So it could help you in your, your career or your, your life in other ways. Right. Um, there's been there's even been scientific research on that where uh, they ask people to perform practices in their lucid dream state. And, and then they would uh, see if their practices had improved in the waking state. Yeah. And, and so there's actually some evidence to show that if you practice a skill in the lucid dream state, it'll actually uh, transfer over and improve your waking state performance. Yeah, that is incredible. Um, but yeah, you mentioned at the end of that, like uh, the, the kind of some of the more spiritual sides. I was going to ask you specifically, yeah, what are some of the spiritual benefits? And you kind of gone into it there. Um, but is there, can you kind of expand on that at all in terms of the spiritual side of it? And, and do you think lucid dreams can help us or take us towards uh, having a spiritual awakening or going through a spiritual awakening? Yeah. So um, what a lot of people don't realize is, um, is, of course, lucid dreaming, the scientific evidence came out about 50 years ago, uh, around the end of 1980. I guess that's about 43 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but... For thousands of years before that, lucid dreaming acted as a spiritual pathway. So in Sufism and the mystical branch of Islam, they use lucid dreaming as a way to connect with the divine. In Buddhist dream yoga, they use lucid dreaming in a number of ways to uh, uh, have an experience of non-duality uh, or, or get to a real reality. Uh, behind the phenomenal reality and then in native like native american traditions native shamanic traditions around the world they've used lucid dreaming as well and and so all of them you know prior to the scientific uh, discovery of lucid dreaming lucid dreaming has had many thousands years of work done in it but mostly towards spiritual uh, pursuits or to a greater understanding of the nature of things. And, and so, so just to kind of give you an example of, of something simple that a person could do is um, within a lucid dream, you could meditate. And, and so, of course, meditation means a lot of different things to a lot of people, but you could, you might become lucidly aware, stabilize the lucid dream, and then begin to chant a mantra. So, so when people have done this in lucid dreams, what's interesting Sometimes uh, they report that it sounds like a thousand people have joined them uh, chanting the mantra within wow. the lucid dream. And that, so that's kind of wild. Uh, yeah. I remember uh, reading in the magazine uh, Lucid Dreaming Experience that, that I co-edit with a friend. Uh, a person submitted a lucid dream where she began to chant a, a Japanese healing mantra called Reke, a Reke mantra. And suddenly an ancient Japanese woman appeared and explained to the lucid dreamer that she was mispronouncing the mantra and uh, she, she needed to uh, change the pronunciation of a couple of syllables in order to do it correct. Wow. And so I, I think that's kind of wild. 
But that, yeah. that's one type of meditation. Another type of meditation that people have done in lucid dreams, they've emptied their mind. They become lucidly aware and then just began to let go. And, and that, that's kind of the path I pursued. And, and it resulted in some really profound and transcendental kind of lucid dreams. Yeah. So in which you, you told us about some of those last time. So again, I'm going to keep probably mentioning if people want to go and hear loads of your experiences, <laughs> go and go and listen to the last one because that was brilliant. But when you're emptying your mind, so are you kind of really consciously like choosing things to, to try and separate yourself from? Or is it a lot more of a, you know, standing back process and just just trying to? Yeah. You know, one one thing that's um, not immediately obvious in lucid dreams, uh, but when you become aware within a dream you're dreaming, your focus is really sharp. It it's really just clear cut and and right in that moment, and and so like like here in the waking state, you know, um, I realize oh, I'm talking to you. I can feel the chair and and I can you know experience the temperature in the room and all that kind of stuff. And so my focus is kind of all over the place. But in a lucid dream, your focus goes really along kind of what your experience and thinking is at that moment. And so in a lucid dream, when you begin to meditate by letting go, it's like at that level, it's so easy to let go. It's you just, your focus and intent is on letting go of thoughts, emotions, expectations, beliefs, whatever, just let it go. And it's like you can almost feel uh, that letting go process occurred. And yeah. and like we talked about in my first uh, video, some really profound things happen uh, uh, when that occurred, because it basically showed me that our thoughts help to create the dream experience that we then are engaged in. And so when you let go of thoughts, then the dream experience begins to disappear and, mm. and it's replaced by light. And, yeah. and so there's kind of this light of awareness behind phenomenal experience. So, so anyway, uh, um, it's, it's truly a profound practice. And uh, I, I really encourage people to give it a go if they have never meditated in a lucid dream. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned as well that they can, you, lucid dreams can be useful to help with getting over phobias or, or getting past bad habits. So maybe just for just in a nutshell, can you just talk for a minute or two about how how that would work? Yeah. So, um, for example, with phobias, like let's say you have a fear of heights. Um, I recall talking to a lucid dreamer who uh, told me about his cousin who was in the armed forces. Uh, and in a special branch of the armed forces. And every time uh, the guy had to scramble out of a fourth floor window down the side of a wall, you know, he, he would either pass out or, or, or get up, you know, just couldn't do it. Yeah. But in his lucid dreams, he began to practice. And the beautiful thing is in a lucid dream, you know that it's a dream, so you're not gonna get hurt. And mm -hmm. you know it's a lucid dream, so you can at least try. And if you don't like it, you can stop the experience and wake up. But anyway, he said his cousin began to do this in four or five lucid dreams. He would scramble out of a rope down a window and go down four or five floors. He would do all sorts of things at a, at a height that in waking reality would have scared the daylights out of him. And after about the fifth lucid dream, he realized that his fear of heights had disappeared. Mm -hmm. So that kind of shows that when you practice this stuff in this reality of lucid dreaming, it actually does have a tendency to affect um, either your, your waking mind 
or, or your waking perception of things and, and yeah. can dramatically alter it. So it's the same concept as, yeah, like practicing a surgeon, practicing surgery. It's the same idea, like you interface with the, the thing you want to work on. Um, so if you're scared of spiders, which you kind of like, uh, you, you, you want to see a bunch of spiders in your lucid dream. Right. You know, like, like a psychologist, if you came with a phobia, that they might start a process they call a gradual desensitization. So it's like if you had a fear of spiders, you know, they might show you a picture of a spider, a little mm -hmm. spider. And then the next session, they show you a picture of a big spider. Then the next session, they'd bring a spider that's encased in glass or something so it, it can't get you. And, and so they would gradually expose you to this and as a result, kind of desensitize you. And maybe after 10 or 12 sessions, then you could stand to be in the same room with a spider without freaking out. Mm -hmm. but, but I think the interesting thing about lucid dreaming is it occurs faster, much faster. You, you let go of your fear, you come to terms with it at a deep level of the unconscious mind. And as a result, the waking results just appear that much faster. Yeah, that is really interesting. I mean, maybe because yeah, of something to do with the ego as well, possibly. the. Um, and, and I was going to say with the bad habits. So if somebody wanted to try and use lucid dreaming to stop smoking or drinking or what have you, in, again, in a nutshell, how, how do you approach that? Yeah, so um, probably one of the best examples uh, comes from a book by Charlie Morley where there's this uh, young guy became lucidly aware He's going around at this party and he notices this woman keeps following him. And finally, he turns and asks the woman, who are you? What, what do you want? And she said something like, uh, I represent your brain and do us all a favor and stop smoking. It bothers us. Mm -hmm. and, and so as a lucid dreamer, he's kind of blown away like, what? You know, uh, you, you want me to stop smoking and you represent my brain? And so then the lucid dreamer began to think about it and he thought, that he had tried to stop smoking before, but he always had cravings and then he'd return to smoking. Mm -hmm. So what he did in this instance, he told the representation of the brain, okay, how about this? Every time I think about smoking, you make me think of something else instead. And, and the representation said, okay, we'll see what we can do. And the gentleman reports that he woke up, had no interest in smoking, he could hang out with smokers, had no interest in smoking. It, it was just like something within him died. Yeah. And so you can kind of start to see how you could use that for other bad habits. You could meet a representation of the bad habit or a representation of the body or whatever and encourage the body. You know, whenever I start thinking of washing my hands a million times, you know, a day, you know, I think of something else instead. And yeah. uh, you could begin to see, wow, you might be able to use lucid dreaming to really let go of some bad habits and, and really uh, change your life. But I've talked to people who within lucid dreams uh, have realized that they need to let go of uh, drug habits, uh, of other just really compelling bad habits, of agoraphobia, just a fear of everything. Their lucid dreams taught them how to let it go. And, and they woke up, you know, as transformed people. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, we talked briefly about kind of spiritual awakening and, and how that can be impacted by lucid dreams. I don't know if you will have an answer to this question because it would have required talking to a lot of people that have had a spiritual awakening and then have told you about how their dreams have changed. But I'm wondering, yeah, are you aware of whether people's dreams change after, like materially after having a spiritual awakening? Well, here's what I would say. If, if you want to have a big dream, it helps to have big thoughts. 
You know, you got to have a big question in your head and really, you know, struggle with the big question. And then you're likely to, to have a big dream. Um, when it when it comes to kind of uh, spiritual awakening, I, w- I would say it's kind of uh, an unfoldment. It's, it's not like, you know, one day you were this and then the next day, boom, you know, you're you're a monk uh, headed to a monastery in the middle of the desert. It, it's kind of like a gradual unfolding, a gradual awakening and all. For some people, when they begin to interact with what I call their larger awareness, when they like read my book and and I suggest that they ignore the dream figures and just ask a question of their unconscious mind, when they hear that response, they might hear it or they might see a response that's a, a total change of the lucid dream, which is a response to their question or query. For some people, that's a really a mind blow because then they realize, wait a second, there's you're telling me there's more to the world than the ego and conscious self, that there's a larger awareness uh, there. For some people, that's that in a, in and of itself is a spiritual awakening. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I did speak to somebody recently because um, there is also like spontaneous spiritual awakening. So like you, you can have like a really intense like experience that does kind of do the thing you said like overnight like changes you and i spoke to somebody who had that experience she's a psychologist and she funnily enough she was having a really intense lucid dream woke up from it and um basically her mind took her straight into this kind of spiritual awakening experience and uh and yeah she i mean she couldn't go into too much detail in terms of the link but it certainly she was having a, a vivid lucid dream and then yeah that happened straight from it on the other side i have no idea whether that's common and obviously we'd have to talk to lots of people to find out how much that happens but yeah i just thought that was interesting um, but, but besides besides awakening the, there's also what i'd call spiritual insights um mm-hmm. like i remember my co-author of my second book um lucid dreaming plain and simple um, carolyn mccready she, she shared in the book how, how one time in a lucid dream, she did something that, that I, I wouldn't suggest for people unless you've been a lucid dreamer for a long time. But she announced in the lucid dream, show me my greatest fear. Mm. Show me my greatest fear. And suddenly she said in front of her appears uh, death, you know, the, oh, wow. the guy with the hood and, and the sickle and the whole thing. And she, she said she got so freaked out that, that she told herself to wake up. And then she's laying there in bed and she rolls over in bed and and guess who's sleeping right next to her? It was, uh, it was death. And she was having a false awakening, what lucid dreamers call false awakening. And, and then she, then she uh, you know, decided to wake up for good. Yeah. But, but, but here, here's the insight aspect is that in the morning she began to think, I really do have a fear of death. And, and she, you know, you, she got real with, you know, that fear part of herself. And yeah. so she began to read books about death, began to read books, you know, about, you know, people who have near death experiences, began to read, you know, books about kind of get engaged with death and yeah. quit avoiding it. So, so then about a month later, she had another lucid dream. And in this lucid dream, she decided to now ask that question again. Now show me my greatest fear. And she does that and suddenly death reappears. Uh, but this time, because of all the reading she had done, she decided to embrace death. And so she took a step towards it to give it a hug and, and death stepped towards her. And she said when she gave it a hug, it was the most profound kind of deep experience of kind of understanding and, and mutual awareness. 
And, and she said when she woke from that lucid dream, her uh, fear of death was gone. Wow. So again, uh, spiritual awakening is great, but for a lot of us, there's kind of spiritual insights as we go along and deal with our fears, our limiting beliefs, and that kind of thing, and, and become more our true self. Mm. Yeah, definitely. That's, yeah, that was fascinating. Um, so you spoke when when we spoke last time. You mentioned these, and you mentioned them earlier in this conversation as well, like the um, the inner self, the larger self, the the oversoul. And I just wondered if you could kind of expand on them a little bit. Are these just different areas, or not just? I don't want to play it down, but are these in your mind? Are these different aspects of our consciousness? Is any of these like a, an aspect, or like the conscious universe? Is it anything like greater than ourself here? Um, what do these terms mean to you? And, and yeah. Yeah, th this is a really a great question because uh, um, I taught myself how to lucid dream in 1975. And then in 1985, I was part of a lucid dream explorers group where every month we had a goal to achieve. And, and one month the goal was um, find out what your dream figures represent. And so in that lucid dream, I, I follow a woman into an office and I, I'm lucidly aware. Now I remember the monthly goal to find out what the lucid dream figures represent. And, and I step up to a gentleman and, and I ask him, excuse me, what do you represent? And instead of the gentleman responding, a, a voice boomed out a partial response from above. And so it didn't really make sense. And so I looked up and repeated what I had just heard, kind of like, what? And then it... It's like it had to think about it, and then it gave me a full response of what this dream figure represented. Mm. In the morning, I began to think, why didn't the dream figure respond? Why did this non-visible voice respond? And then I began to wonder, is there an awareness behind the dream? You know, you might call it the unconscious mind. You might call it the inner self or the larger awareness or whatever. And so after that, in many of my lucid dreams, I just ignore what was the dream figures, and I would just ask a question of the what I called the larger awareness. And what was wild was to see the amount of creativity and the depth of knowledge and the responsiveness. It, it, it was really uh, profound. So, so here's what I would say is that, you know, obviously something exists in the lucid dream. You know, you become lucidly aware and you fly through the wall. And then on the other side of the wall is a castle and a white horse. Who created that? You, you didn't create it. You just flew through the wall. So obviously the unconscious processes or the unconscious mind uh, still exists. And when you have this kind of non-visible awareness respond um, and you see how creative it is, I mean, it's, it's creativity is far beyond what the conscious or ego self could come up with. So what you begin to realize is that lucid dreaming in some respects is starting to connect me with this inner part of my awareness. I can call it my inner self or my larger awareness or whatever it is, but obviously there's something more going on there. And that, that's why I call my first book, uh, Lucid Dreaming Gateway to the Inner Self, is I kind of explain how this process went and then I start to share lucid dreams from others, um, including Stephen LaBerge, who's kind of the father of modern lucid dream science. I mean, some of, their, some of his most profound lucid dreams was when he surrendered in the lucid dream and let go of trying to direct or influence anything. And, and then he, he would have just mind-blowing lucid dreams. So, yeah. so what it is 
it's hard to tell, but I think what it shows us is there's more to us than this ego and conscious self that's engaged in the waking world. There's also this deeper self, this inner self that that exists and is directly in, engageable in the lucid dream state. Yeah. So again, without putting a label on it, you think it's some kind of higher aspect of ourself um, that we are, yeah, like our kind of one word is our unconscious or our subconscious, like that, the part that we're right. not in touch with on a, an everyday level, but that it's still on some level, still us. Do you think that there's also an aspect that is beyond us? Like, I, I don't know whether you're you, you know familiar with the idea of a conscious universe and that everything being connected, but do you think that that comes into play here and like i guess to further add on to that are we able to like access information that we don't that we don't know on any level like that we've never seen or, or heard right so um all, all good questions um as i went deeper into lucid dreaming um after 20 some years of lucid dreaming um I began to see that we exist within what I would call an interconnected oneness. You know, someone might call it the conscious universe and, and, and that's fine. It's kind of basically the same idea, yeah. but, but that we, we exist in a oneness. The, the, phys, the physical manifestation of it is, is just one portion of it, but, but I would say at its more deeper and truer levels, it's, it's actually kind of a, a psycho spiritual uh, awareness is is what the interconnected oneness uh, is all about, and, and so so um, an example I gave in my first book of, of how this kind of manifests itself in the waking world. Um, what one time my wife and I were on a, a trip down the Grand Canyon down the Colorado River, and, and so you're on a raft for seven days, you know, with other people, and, and so about. It's, it's so wild to be in a natural place where your cell phones don't work and, and all that kind of stuff, because you really get back to nature. You're sleeping out under the stars. You're going down the river. You know, you're just outside the entire day. But on, on the third or fourth day, um, we came to Havasu Creek, and there's this beautiful waterfall in Havasu Canyon. And so you have to walk up about a mile and, and then you get down to the creek and then you keep walking and get to the waterfall. But anyway, I'm laying in this creek and it's probably the water is 75 degrees, 80 degrees is, is heaven because in Arizona at that time, you know, it's probably 95, 100 degrees already. And as I'm laying there, I get into a meditative state and I reach out to the canyon and I say, Canyon, what do you have to say to me now? And I hear very clearly, get out while you still can. And, and so, so I, I shook my head and I thought, what? And I, I thought, you know, maybe I'm sitting on an aquatic plant or, or doing something here, or maybe that was just a goofy uh, a thought that just wandered through my head at that moment. So I got back into a meditative state about five minutes later, I reached out to the canyon again, and I reached out to it because again, I believe that we all exist in the interconnected oneness, that, that everything is fundamentally conscious and alive. And on a deeper level, everything interconnects in the interconnected oneness. So I reached out and said, Canyon, what do you have to say to me? And this time it was more urgent and insistent, get out while you still can. And, and so I stood up in the creek and I told the other people I was with and my wife, I go, we, we got to get out of here. And they said, why? This is heaven. Why do we need to leave? And I say, there's, there's something wrong. We got to get out of here. 
And right at that moment, I look up in this kind of slot canyon, and I can see way up there a little dark bit of a thundercloud. And I realize there's going to be a thunderstorm, and there'll be a flash flood in this canyon because there's no soil to hold the water. It just all goes down the canyon and, and into the Grand Canyon. And, and so when, when I point that out to people, then all of a sudden everyone goes, oh, yeah, we got to get out of here. And then the crew comes running up the trail. Get back to the boat. There's going to be a flash flood. And, and thankfully, everyone got back to the boat safe and sound and, and the heavens opened up. But again, in lucid dreaming, I think we see that we exist within an interconnected oneness. Um, you have to go really deep in order to understand this. And you have to work through... Um, kind of your ego mind uh, in order to kind of hear more clearly that inner awareness. But, but it definitely happens. And, and those kind of examples show me that we actually exist in an interconnected oneness. Yeah. Wow. Do you think we can do a similar kind of thing, but intentionally? So for uh, remote viewing, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the, the evidence and, and stuff with remote viewing. Um, do you think it's something we can do? Yeah. So I'll give you an example. So I'm having a lucid dream. I decide I'm going into the library. I pick out a book on, you know, whatever quantum quantum mechanics or, or Spanish or physics. And, um, and, it, and I'm flipping through the book. Is it just going to be, is my brain just going to serve me gobbledygook? Is it just going to be like the most basic information on those subjects that my brain is aware of? Or do you think there's a chance that, again, not for everybody necessarily, and it depends on the occasion, but is there a chance that you think that it's going to show me actual information that I have never seen or come across? Like, is that possible to remote view in a lucid dream? Right. Uh, you, you know, um, if, if I became lucidly aware, um, I, I would do like my friend Ed Kellogg did, and, and he, he allowed me to use his lucid dream um, mm -hmm. in my first book. But, but he, he had a technique that he would become lucidly aware if he wanted to know, have a question about, in this particular example, he had applied for a government grant for, for some scientific research. And so in the lucid dream, he went over and, and had a bowl and he told himself that when he flipped over the bowl, he would see the answer. And he asked, am I going to get our, well, will the government grant um, come to me? And, and he flipped it over and there was a note, like a little fortune cookie said, goodbye. And, and he realized that no, the, the government people weren't going to renew his grant. They were going to say goodbye to him. And he woke up and it turns out that that, that was the case. So, so um, why I bring that up as an example, if you just don't have any intention and you in a lucid dream open up a book, you know, you might just see random words or gobbledygook or whatever. But if you have an intention in the lucid dream that now when I open up this book, I'll, I will see, you know, how, whatever, then oftentimes when you open up the book, you'll see a response to the question that you've just asked. So, so you have to use intention. Um, mm. If you just decide that you're just going to do random stuff, you're going to get random responses. If you do something with intent and a positive expectation, then there's a good chance you'll succeed at getting a response. Yeah. So if you think if we go in with intent and say, I want to learn about quantum mechanics in this book, something that we know, like, you know, in, in this example, that you know nothing about whatsoever. You think that, again, not in every case, but you think there's a chance that, that 
whatever force behind it is going to serve up some genuine new knowledge that we're, we're unaware of. Right. Now, here's how it gets complicated. Um, I remember uh, one of um, Stephen LaBerge's assistants and, and Lucid Dream uh, participants in his studies, uh, she announced in the Lucid Dream, uh, now show me the secret to the universe or, or, or something along that line. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden she said, out of this space in front of her starts coming all these mathematical equations and bizarre geometric things and all this kind of stuff. And so again, she might have received the answer to the secret of the universe, but it came in a form that that she herself, uh, not being a mathematician and whatever, uh, couldn't truly appreciate. And, yeah. and so you have to be a little bit uh, careful. What One thing I would say too is sometimes the best thing to do is ask to experience the concept. Um, so you're bringing up you know, quantum physics or modern physics. Uh, and again, my friend Ed Kellogg, uh, once in a lucid dream, he announced, now by the power of Alka-Hest, let a superstring manifest. And so superstring theory is, is part of modern physics. And it was interesting that at that moment, a non-visible voice uh, replied, at this time, you do not seem ready for an experience of this magnitude. Oh, wow. And and it told him basically to come back when when he felt prepared for that and had a clarity of mind and and a focused intent in order to deal with the magnitude of it and yeah. because that's what i don't think people understand when you ask to experience a concept sometimes you experience it at a fantastically deep level within the lucid dream i mean it, the energy and the intensity of it just kind of bowls you over uh, in a lucid dream, you can say stop or time out or whatever, and 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 it'll stop. But but in this particular ex example, the larger awareness apparently of Ed Kellogg's told him that he could have that experience, but he had to be prepared for it because again, it it might blow his you know blow his mind. Yeah. So 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 you know. Uh, I don't want people to think it's just super simple. Oh, you open up a book and here's the secrets of the universe, or now yeah. you can see how cold fusion works or whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a more complicated framework there. Yeah, far more nuanced than that. What about if somebody wants to kind of re-experience or relive a specific memory um, from from their life? Like if, again, would you, is it possible to go in with the intent of like, okay, show me you know, X, Y, or Z holiday or day or, you know, event that I, that I remember, maybe loosely remember in the waking state, maybe you kind of only have a few, you know, slim details, but then can you, yeah, is there a way to, to go in with intent and to actually try and relive or re-experience something? You know, I, I feel that a person can do that. And, and uh, I recall talking to a young guy, uh, a teenager who, who got into lucid dreaming and he told me how he announced in a lucid dream that now he wished to experience his his happiest dream ever. Mm. And he said, suddenly the entire lucid dream switched over to this dream, you know, where everything was great and, and you know, just filled him with joy and happiness and all that kind of stuff. So, so he, he asked to relive a dream experience, not knowing what dream experience would be called up. Yeah. So I think you could also, you know, um, there's another example of a woman um, who I interviewed for our magazine, Lucid Dreaming Experience. Her name was Hope. And, and this woman 
in waking life uh, was an airline mechanic uh, and was working on a Boeing aircraft when it broke free from its moorings and rolled across her legs. And, and so this happened in physical reality and she lost one of her legs. She was in the hospital for, for six months. And what happened to her is that she began to have recurring nightmares every night. She said it, it got so bad that she hated to fall asleep. I mean, that's how bad the nightmares were. And then one day she came across a book on lucid dreaming, remembered that she liked to lucid dream as a little kid. And then she, as she read the book, she realized that, oh, she could use lucid dreaming to deal with recurring nightmares. Mm -hmm. So uh, later that night, she falls asleep. She's being chased by the monster, having that nightmare. And this time she realizes, wait a second, how can I be running? I just have one leg. And at that moment, she turns and faces the monster lucidly aware and basically just says bye and takes off flying. And she said after that, her her lucid dreams are her nightmares ceased and, and all. But but what, why I'm bringing that up is it's just to show that Later on, she decides that she wants to relive the waking experience mm -hmm. of having those wheels roll across her legs. So this is many years later after she resolves the nightmare. And she said what happened to her. So she became lucid. She announced that she wanted to relive that moment. Now she's back in the hangar. There's the Boeing that they're working on, and there's the mooring. Suddenly she sees the chains break, and the wheel starts to come off the moorings, and it's coming right to crush her legs. And she said she's watching all of this lucidly aware. And then she said, suddenly the most, the most hilarious thing happened. It was like right where the wheel was going to crush her legs. Suddenly this kind of black thing appeared, you know, like you might see on the TV where somebody, you know, drops their mm -hmm. shirt and, and the sensors put a, put a black thing over. So, so no one sees anybody's parts. Yeah. Uh, and she said it was the most hilarious thing in her own lucid dream it wouldn't let her see the exact moment, you know, her legs being crushed. Yeah. Um, and she assumed that her larger awareness realized that it wasn't going to be, um, help her heal anymore to see that exact moment. So, yeah. so again, you can relive uh, waking moments, I believe. And you also can relive past dream moments uh, within a lucid dream. Yeah. Wow. So I guess, yeah, you can either try and go in with the intent of having a specific memory or whatever or you can say show me my happiest memory or my you know my my most formative memory or anything like that yeah that's fascinating um last time we spoke you shared a, a lucid dream experience you had where you felt like it was a, a potential past life memory um i can't remember all the details now but i think it was like an old lady maybe sat at like a bar or something in a fishing town something along those lines um anyway i was just going to ask you how commonly or how com how how frequent do you think maybe either snippets of past life memories or dreams that reference or show us memories from past lives how common do you think that phenomenon is and and how can we tell or how can we at least have an idea that this is more than just a dream this might be a memory from something else yep so so um if you want to explore that area, it, it's really something that as a dreamer or a lucid dreamer, you, you really want to explore with kind of a uh, rational viewpoint. I'll, I'll put it like that. Mm -hmm. and, and so, for example, if it was a lucid dream and you wanted to explore it, 
I would try to get some information that I could confirm in the morning that was outside of my own knowing if I yeah. found myself in 15th century France and, and this, this, and this, you know, I, I'd want to find out some information that I could confirm in the morning. Um, I, I think what happened to me just, just for the listener's sake is that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a young guy growing up in the Midwest in America, you know, I have a traditional family and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and like, uh, here in America, um, a lot of people would go to church. And so I kind of grew up with that, you know, kind of traditional Protestant view of things. Yeah. And basically that view, uh, you have one life and, and that's it. But I remember I, I was probably, uh, 12 years old or something like that. And one night, um, in the dream state, I'm looking through the eyes of, of a guy who's wearing a heavy wool coat. And he has a glass of red wine in his right hand. And, and I can see his, you know, his heavy wool coat and his thick hands. And I'm, then I'm looking at his apartment because there's gas lights on the wall. And, and so gas lights, you know, existed for about 15 years, around 1890, 1900. And then I have the sense, wait a second, I, I'm, I'm in the Netherlands because I can feel the harbor uh, behind me. And I get the sense that this guy is a merchant. And, and has a boat in the harbor. Anyway, so I'm about 12 years old and I'm looking through this guy's eyes when suddenly he takes the glass of red wine and he brings it up to his mouth and takes a drink and the wine just explodes in his mouth. And so I'm experiencing this as a 12 year old who had never drank wine and he grew up in a family where we never had alcohol in the house. And I woke up and I thought, whoa, wait a second, does wine actually taste like that? That's wild. And, and probably uh, now since that time, I've probably had three experiences where, where wine has exploded in my mouth, like it did in, in that particular kind of semi-lucid dream. But I think what was going on at that time, because it began to happen almost annually, I'd have some dream where I would experience looking through the eyes of somebody or I would experience being in a past century in a past time. Like um, one time I'm walking down a dusty trail. I get to the bottom of the dusty trail and, and now it's a open valley. And I see these people dressed up in probably 14th, 15th century uh, European uh, clothing. And, and then that, that really stunned me. And then I looked at myself and I'm wearing green leotards and a green and white silk shirt. And that's when I became lucidly aware. And so now lucidly aware, I go and interact with these, these folks. But what, what I began to realize is that there's, there's more going on here. Your, your dreams and your lucid dreams oftentimes will start to show you that the one life view is a concoction. It's a belief that people have come up with and that that the actual state of affairs is that we have more lives uh, than, than we honestly, um, I, I think we'd be amazed if we realized how many lives that we'll probably experience before we leave, uh, you know, graduate from this dimension. So, so you'll see it in dreams and occasionally in lucid dreams, you'll see it, but it does help to have a verifiable information. And th those aren't the greatest examples of verifiable information, but I've had lucid dreams where I've learned things that Robert had no idea of. And then in the morning I can ins investigate through searching. 
and discover that, oh yes, at that particular time, in that particular culture, they had this kind of game or they had this kind of way of writing or whatever it was I saw in the lucid dream. Yeah. How, how commonly do you hear from other people that they've had similar kind of dreams and similar kind of experiences? You know, it, it's interesting. Um, I think if you ask people who are deeply engaged in dreaming and lucid dreaming, the, they'll begin to tell you their experiences. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, a lot of us or a lot of the population, they don't care about dreams. They don't remember dreams. They just, they have dreams. They just let them go. And, and so they're kind of disconnected uh, from all of that. I would say it's relatively common, but I would also say that it happens probably to educate the person to uh, not have a limiting belief in just one life. Um, you know, because when I was 12 years old, you know, you grow up in the church and you have this one view and you assume that the church has it right. And so you get kind of uh, uh, pigeonholed in that one kind of viewpoint. And so when I was a kid, I think it happened more frequently just to begin to break down that limiting belief and, and to kind of explain to me that, hey, there's really more going on here. And so so each life is important but one life isn't the totality of uh, personal experience yeah have you had multiple dreams with the same characters like but different ones not the same recurring dream like um for example the one in the netherlands have you for example had dreams of him in different settings or, or anything like that right uh you know i i, I have with the uh, netherland guy um um there was a period where for about nine months uh in my lucid dreams, I decided to actively go out and and try to experience uh, past life or other life experiences. And uh, and so uh, in one of these lucid dreams, I actually met this gentleman face to face. And uh, instead of looking through his eyes, uh, I met him face to face. And then I realized that, oh, my gosh, I've actually dreamt about this guy uh, in other times. And so in other dreams, uh, I've actually had this dream figure appear. So so again, I, I feel like it's actually a, a little bit quite complicated, but it gets to this issue in psychology of nature versus nurture. You know, are, are little kids born with um, certain interests and certain proclivities and abilities, or does the nurturing that they receive as little kids, you know, develop those abilities somehow. And, and I, I think the, the more I've gone along with uh, dreaming and investigating all of this, the more I'd say that we're born with certain characteristics and actually certain intents that we want to explore. And we're born with certain abilities that potentially we've investigated in, in other lifetimes and now bring with us and, and want to uh, uh, play around with and explore. So, yeah. so I think uh, I, I've I've gotten into that kind of uh, nature version that that we're born with a goal in mind uh, to achieve in this life, and and sometimes it's just growing our abilities, exploring things, um, learning, and educating ourselves uh, in more deeper ways. Yeah, 
And I'm guessing in terms of advice, if somebody wants to try and, you know, potentially experience something from a past life or, or something, you know, try and have one of these experiences, I'm guessing the advice is simply to, to kind of ask the dream, like dream, show me, uh, you know, something from a, a previous life, or is there more to it than that? Yeah, that would, that would definitely be uh, a, a way. Um, yeah. I, I recall my friend Ed Kellogg, he, he said one time in a lucid dream, as I recall, he announced now let me experience my most spiritually powerful past mm. life. And he said, all of a sudden in front of him appears this uh, gentleman, uh, an African gentleman who was very powerful and very aware and whatever. And, and the gist of it was that Ed and, the, and this uh, past life manifestation got into kind of a wrestling uh, match and, and Ed felt happy to finally escape uh, uh, this powerful, uh, spiritually powerful uh, aspect that, that he had called forth. So, so again, uh, you might want to ask to experience, you know, your happiest past life aspect or something like that mm -hmm. in order to uh, avoid something like uh, what Ed experienced. Yeah. You had a, a chapter that we, we took, we spoke about this chapter very briefly last time, but I wanted to dig in a little bit more. So in your first book, there was a chapter that didn't make it past the publisher. And that was about using lucid dreams to contact or communicate with past life versions of ourselves. Um, again, can you just expand on it a little bit more? And just if there's any other bits of advice that you might be able to offer for people that want to to do that, like how to, it may be if it's not experiencing through, through the, the, the eyes necessarily, but in terms of communicating or getting advice maybe, or I don't know, life lessons. Right. So, so um, um, in that chapter, I kind of explained how I, you know, uh, got into this. And, and again, it wasn't part of my worldview uh, mm. starting out of the box. It, it was something that, that I eventually came to accept by virtue of a number of lucid dreams and a number of these experiences of, of looking through another's eyes and, and learning things and, and then seeing how that connects with my um, waking world experience in my my lifetime. Then then I kind of in that chapter kind of shared, you know, some of these different approaches of how a lucid dreamer could explore it for themselves. And then um, I did want to share some um, a little bit of concern, I would say, that, that, that I want people to be aware of. Um, in, in Buddhist thought, uh, the, they talk about uh, seeds of laya. It's kind of like seeds of awareness or seeds of consciousness that, that we all have. And of course, a seed is, is normally dormant until the conditions are proper and th then it begins to grow. And so what I found, especially during that nine-month period where I was actively seeking out uh, past life information and past life selves, is that it began to awaken in my mind other streams of consciousness. So, so you're probably very familiar with the Ben stream of consciousness, you know, how you view the world, how you think about things, you know, your preferences, your dislikes, your likes, all that kind of stuff. I mean, you're, you're kind of familiar with uh, the Ben uh, stream of consciousness just like I'm familiar with the Robert stream of consciousness, but they're not the same stream of consciousness. And so during that nine month period, I began to realize that on occasion, I could like pick up, you know, like a different radio channel of someone else's stream of consciousness. And, and that's when I realized, oh, I think I'm awakening to some degree, 
these other aspects. And how this became manifest uh, was especially in one particular instance. So I'm at, I'm at the grocery store. I'm at the local fairway grocery store that I'd probably go to four times a week uh, back then. And all of a sudden, I can hear this other stream of consciousness that I know isn't my stream of consciousness. And, and I realize, oh, you know, that, that one's pretty intelligent and, and all. And, and so I push my cart through the grocery store. I suddenly turn and there's the meat market, you know, with like 80, 90 feet of steaks and chicken and fish and pork and, and all that. And all of a sudden, I heard so clearly this other stream of consciousness announce, oh my, they, they have a cemetery of cut up bodies next to where they store their food. And in its mind, the meat market connected to the grocery store was just like an abomination. It, it was just like the most horrific kind of disjointed, unacceptable thing imaginable. And you have to realize I've been going to that same grocery store for probably 20 years. So th this was not a Robert Wagoner thought. This was this other stream of consciousness thought. Yeah. So again, that's the only um, kind of concern that I'd have for somebody is that you have to be kind of secure in yourself, aware of yourself, uh, not prone to whatever, you know, before you kind of go exploring this kind of route. And that would be my piece of advice or my caveat uh, before others uh, begin to explore that. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Did you potentially like ask your your inner self or, or however we want to call it, like after that experience, like, you know, what, what was the deal with that today? Whose consciousness am I streaming? What's what's going on here? Where did that come from? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think I just thought of it on, on kind of a conscious level. And again, that 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 these other awarenesses had kind of been reawakened to some degree yeah. during this lucid dreaming period of of trying to learn about them and, and that therefore a, a person really had to be familiar with their stream of consciousness versus another stream of consciousness just because they're not going to see perceive the world in the same way they're they're unique and distinct is yeah is what i learned are you aware about whether there's any evidence that we can communicate with deceased loved ones or, or deceased people or, or spirits and they don't have to be loved ones but deceased people deceased spirits during lucid dreams you know um um so in in the science of dreaming uh people call these visitation dreams okay. so uh and, and oftentimes they occur after someone a loved one a relative has recently passed away and and then they'll appear in a dream and say everything's okay or i'm fine or i'm here with grandma or, or whatever that there's kind of common uh visitation dreams some of them pleasant, some of them not so pleasant, and that kind of thing. Now, now the beautiful thing about lucid dreaming is that when you see a deceased loved one, at that moment, you might become lucidly aware. And then you, then you know, hey, this is a dream. But if you're a good lucid dreamer, you should know that, oh, the deceased person might be a dream symbol, might be a projection of my grief or a memory or a longing or whatever, or the deceased uh, person might, dream figure might be a valid uh, visitation of someone in the after death state. And, yeah. and so if you're a good lucid dreamer, now you have an opportunity that you can talk and ask questions 
and possibly if you learn something outside of your own knowing, then you have some rational evidence to conclude that, you know, you met someone in the after death state. Have you spoken to many people or heard accounts from many people that do feel like they've had evidential communications like uh, with people that are deceased or spirits? So, yeah, so, so a lot of lucid dreamers have what they consider to be evidential account. And, and sometimes, you know, we were talking earlier about spiritual awakenings. Sometimes this can be a spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. Like I remember uh, uh, 10 years ago, a guy was interviewing me and he said that what happened to him was that when he was in high school, his mom passed away from cancer. And by then his parents had already divorced and everything and he didn't have any relationship with his dad. And so he was just angry at the world. He was angry at God, angry at the world, just angry at everybody. And and so instead of going to college or something like that, he became a bouncer in a bar. And and so at two o'clock in the morning or whenever the bar closed, you know, if you didn't leave the bar, he could beat you up then. And so he said this was a great job for him because he had all this anger inside and he got paid to beat up people, you know, at two o'clock in the morning to throw them out of the bar. Mm. But he, he said this was going on. And then one night he sees his mom and he thinks, wait a second, mom, mom passed away a few years ago. Oh, this is a dream. He became lucid. And they began to have a conversation. And in the conversation, the mom told him, I left boxes of, of treasured items for you with our friends, you know, so-and-so. And, and mention you have to contact them and get these boxes. And, and so that was part of their interaction. Anyway, in, in the morning, he wakes up and he looks up these long ago friends and he calls them up and that they were so happy to hear from him. They said, what happened to you? You disappeared after your mom died. We had these boxes we wanted to give you that she gave to us to give to you. And, and he, he kind of talked about how he went to a depression and just vanished. Anyway, he gets the boxes. He, he says it's totally transformative. He sees all these things from when he is a little kid, kind of comes to understand his life in a new way. And then he realized that if his mom could come to him in a lucid dream and give him evidence that something exists beyond death, then he decided that there must actually be something more to life. And so he decided to get his head together. He went to community college, learned software coding, and, and actually became a, a very um, established businessman in, in you know tech. But that's how transformative these kind of interactions with the deceased can be, especially when you learn something that's outside of your own knowing. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of my one of my former guests, Ralph Blumenthal, he's an author and a, and a journalist, and he wrote a book about the late Harvard psychiatrist, Dr. John Mack. Um, at the end of his book about John Mack, there were like some anecdotes about uh, afterlife communications that people had received from John Mack uh, or allegedly received from John Mack. And one of them, I think the lady, uh, you know, touched John or, or they hugged or something to that effect. And and she kind of recoiled and said, "Oh, you, John, you're so hot! Like, what what's going on? Why are you why are you so hot?" And and he said, um, "Well, I have to be so that you know it's real, or so it's like so that you know I'm real, something to that effect." And I wonder whether you've heard any accounts or ever come across somebody saying something similar, not necessarily the heat thing, but but some kind of defining characteristic that the the person says, so you know, do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. 
So, so on, on occasion, you'll hear some uh, lucid dream reports of that, of, of people uh, proving that they exist in the non-physical state. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I recall my friend Ed Kellogg doing experiments where he would, after someone had passed away that was an acquaintance of his, yeah. he would wait two or three months and then go in search of them and in a lucid dream. And oftentimes he'd find them and they would, they would surround themselves with things that had interest them, you know, as a young person. Of yeah. course, he didn't know them as young people. He knew them only when they were 70 or 80 or 60 or whatever. And, and in the morning, uh, he would reach out to the family and see if they wanted to learn what he discovered. And oftentimes when he met with the family, they would all laugh because they would confirm all the things that Ed had learned about uh, their deceased loved one that, oh yeah, when he was 20 years old, he had a fascination with, you know, this certain thing that you saw in your lucid dream. And oh yeah, when he was this year, how, how old he had a fascination. So yeah. so one thing that you'll find, uh, kind of like the John Mack, is that, that sometimes on the other side, they want to kind of prove that they exist, that there's mm-hmm. kind of a desire to, to prove that. And, and one way that this happened uh, in kind of a funny way for me um, uh, probably two or three years ago, I found myself uh, in my hometown driving along and I see this building that I know is the family business building. And on it is written that the family, that it gave the name of the family business, our family business. And then it said, partially supported by a loan by, and then it gave my mother's uh, father's name. And I thought, what? I had never heard of that and I'd been involved in the family business. And so in the morning I woke up and I thought, what is going on here? So I call up my mom and I say, last night in a dream, I became semi-lucidly aware when I saw this uh, on, written on the side of the family business. Mm. And, and she, she asked, first she denied it. Then, then, she, then when she heard it was a dream, she admitted that, oh yes, when the family business got started, uh, her and my dad ran out of cash very quickly, just trying to get it all set up. And so they had to reach out to her father, who she was basically estranged from in order to get a loan to, uh, to make it happen. And, you know, I was involved in the family business for 25 years, had never heard that story. But again, this was one of these secrets that my mom was keeping But what was interesting was to see that apparently here it is, you know, 40 years later, my mother's father wanted me at least to understand that he wasn't, you know, a bad person, that he helped out the family when the family needed help. And and that even though my mom always kind of characterized him in negative terms, he, he actually was a caring, concerned person. So, yeah. so I, I find that really interesting that the to think of the deceased wanting to have their names cleared up, you know, after the fact. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting here, here in the U.S. There's actually um, a court example of the dream of a deceased uh, leading to the overturn of a court ruling, and, and so this happened in the eastern U.S. where um, you know uh, the family patriarch had died and the eldest son got all the farmland. Mm-hmm. Well, then about a month, you know, in the court ruling and all. So 
so about a month later, one of the children of the family deceased member has a dream in which the deceased member appears and showed him, showed him that the last copy of the well is actually in the family Bible held by one of their cousins. And, and so in the morning, the person wakes up, gets some friends to come along as witnesses, go to the cousin, gets their version of the family Bible, and there is the last copy of this deceased person's will. And they bring that to the court as new evidence, and they overturn the previous ruling and now divide all the land to the family in, in equal portions. Mm -hmm. so, so, so there's actually a, a court ruling where they use dream evidence uh, of meeting a deceased person to overturn a ruling. But yeah. again, it, it helps to have that kind of evidence. Um, it's kind of interesting to think of John Mack appearing in afterlife experiences to kind of show people that uh, he continues on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow, those are those are fascinating. I'm I'm thinking about, you know, whether it's more like in terms of it going in with the intention of I want to communicate with this person that that passed away, you know, I want to communicate with this person tonight. I wonder whether that is I'm I'm sure it might be possible, but I wonder if it's much less likely in in the sense that maybe it's not all in the control of your own consciousness. Maybe there's another kind of consciousness at play and so I guess, it, do you think it's possible to do it intentionally, like going with that intent, or is it more that it's going to be kind of spontaneous and, and not necessarily asked for? Well, well, I do think your point's well taken because I, I think there's more involved. Like um, af after my father passed away, um, I waited about three months and, and thought, okay, I'm going to try to contact him in a lucid dream. Mm. I became lucidly aware. Then I recalled that, oh, yeah, I want to contact my dad. And at that moment, all the dream figures told me not to do it. They told me it wasn't the right time yet. And I was really stunned that every dream figure there was insistent that it, it's not the right time. And, and because they were in unanimous agreement that it wasn't the right time, I began to think, you know, maybe my dad hasn't got settled in the after death state. Maybe there's complicating factors that, that I don't know. And so, so I decided not to do that. And instead, I made the dream figures explain every dream symbol that I pointed to. And so I just pointed various things in the dream, and they would explain uh, what, what it was doing there. But when I woke up, I decided, okay, if my dad wants to come uh, visit me, then I'll let him come when he's ready to visit me. And it, it was probably three years later uh, that I saw my dad and became lucidly aware and we had a fascinating conversation. And I, I asked him questions about predicting certain things in the family. And basically his uh, predictions turned out to be true of wow. future events that would occur in the family. So so again, I, I think it can be a little bit more complicated that every uh, deceased uh, person isn't ready the next month to uh, you know, get, get drawn into uh, lucid dreamers uh, in, endeavors. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I guess you were convinced with the in terms of the communication with your father. I guess you were convinced that that was that was legitimate, and um, and I suppose a, a fair way to do it, a fair compromise, might be to go in and and kind of say to the the high the, the higher self again, however we want to refer to it, um, is it a good time for me? Like, should I be doing this right now? I want to contact this person. What do you think? What's your opinion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you could ask for the green light to go ahead or or red light to stop and let it go. Yeah, yeah, 
in a similar vein to that, do you think dreams and, and lucid dreams in particular can give us any kind of taste or, or understanding of what might happen after we die or, or what the kind of, you know, survival or an afterlife might might look like? In Again, you can kind of go anywhere you want with this because I know it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's a hard question. Um, so kind of take whichever road, you, you know, feels best. Right. Uh, so um, so here, here's one thing that I would say. Um, in my encounters with the deceased dream figures, so so they're deceased dream figures until I can interact with them and ask them questions and and determine if they're just a symbol, a representation of my grief or whatever, or or if there's something more. So so in what appears to be the the valid instances where it's something more, one thing I've noticed is oftentimes the deceased adopt a younger age than when they passed away, so they don't yeah. look you know, 85 and gray haired, they look, you know, 35 and full of vigor and, and everything. So that's what I've noticed across the board is they almost always seem to adopt um, a life experience probably when they were at their peak, I, yeah. I would say. Also, sometimes you'll notice that they kind of bring things with them. So, uh, so for example, um, when I see my mother's mother, my grandmother, um, she was mostly Scottish. And so every time I see her, cause I only knew her when she was like 60, 70, 80 years old, I'll see her as a young woman who's like 30 and she'll have little pixie elves flying around her head. And that's the only way that I, that I can realize, oh, that's grandma Jenny, because I don't recognize her as a, you know, 35, 40 year old woman. I rec I only knew her as a 70 year old, 80 year old woman. And, and so that, that's how she, she has those little pixies around her head in order to clue me in to, to what's going on and, and, and help me realize what, what the issue is. But, but I think what happens is that you begin to realize that in the after death state, uh, learning goes on. Yeah. And, and, and so they continue uh, the, their own kind of learning about the nature of things, but also they have, something of an interest in um, those that they connect with who are left in the physical realm. And, and so, uh, you know, it, it's not that they can uh, necessarily um, give you a leg up all the time, but, so, but sometimes they'll give you, you know, advice, a warning. Mm -hmm. so, so for example, there's, there's a gentleman who uh, kind of many people claim coined the term lucid dreaming uh, this, this uh, gentleman back at the turn of the century and, and first brought it up in the British Society of Psychical Research. Um, and, and right now I'm blanking on his name, but, but one of his lucid dreams was that he saw his deceased brother-in-law and became lucidly aware. And his deceased brother-in-law said, they tell me that you're going to lose like a 10,000 guilders and, and watch out. And so the lucid dreamer, uh, Frederick Van Eden, thought it was weird because at that time he didn't even have 10,000 guilders. I, I think he had like 100 guilders or something like that. But what happened later that year, a relative passed away, left him a big inheritance, and he put all of these guilders, like 10,000 guilders, into railway stocks. Mm. And railway stocks were booming, 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 but then they crashed and those companies went bankrupt and, and all. And so, so on occasion, you'll see this uh, experience of, of deceased loved ones 
passing on information or a warning, but oftentimes in an indirect way. And so, so I'll give you another example of how indirect it can be. Um, on January 1st of 2022, I am in a dream. I didn't realize it was a dream, but suddenly I see my deceased mother-in-law, Nona, and immediately I start laughing and I become lucidly aware because she, she had passed away 10 years earlier. And so for the first time, she's showing up in, in a dream. And I began to laugh and became lucidly aware. And I noticed she looked about 40 years old and she was wearing a kind of blue dress, the kind that she would have sewn on a sewing machine and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But she comes up to me and I ask her, what do you have to say to me? And she says, I want you to know that September will be a very important month. And I look at her and I start kind of joking around. I said, well, Nona, if you believe September is going to be important, I'm sure it's going to be important. And she looks at me like, you know, I'm crazy. And she goes, no, I want you to understand that September will be a very important month. And so I go, okay, and, and wake up from the lucid dream. Anyway, I, I realized upon waking that uh, normally a deceased person wouldn't come with that kind of a message unless there was something going to occur. And, and I told my wife, I think, I said, I think your mom is coming to tell me that my mom is going to pass away in September. And, uh, so as it turned out, my wife and I go to visit my mom uh, the final week of August, uh, knowing about this uh, lucid dream. And, uh, and it turns out that the next weekend, uh, my mom passes away. So, so again, what's interesting about this is that often in these experiences, when you see these lucid dream transcripts, you realize that the deceased person doesn't tell them exactly what's going to happen, but kind of hints at it or, or gets to another point. It's kind of like um, these Star Trek movies where there's the prime directive that mm, like the advanced civilization rules. can't influence the unadvanced civilization. It, it's yeah. kind of like there's a kind of a rule that they can't tell you exactly. They can kind of hint at something or suggest something but but they can't give you the whole thing uh, down to the final detail. Yeah. But but that that's what I find interesting about these encounters. Uh, so so I think in the after death state we continue to learn, we continue to get educated. But when certain things bubble up, uh, we become aware of them and might try to influence people in the waking world, either through giving them messages, intuitive messages or through uh, appearing in dreams and trying to convey something. But again, I think there's a limitation here about what they can do. Yeah, yeah, no, fascinating. Um, this isn't necessarily a question. I just wanted to mention it quickly. It's just one of the people I spoke to previously, um, Dr. Gregory Shushan, he's uh, done extensive research into NDEs and the afterlife across cultures and, and throughout history. And he his personal kind of speculation on on what an afterlife might look like is that he, he thinks it might have a lot of similarity and and to lucid dreaming to to the idea of being able to kind of choose to an extent and being able to you know think somewhere and you're there and having that kind of consciousness without the body and and he, he goes into it in a bit more detail but anyway i just thought it was you know so so relative to this i just wanted to mention it right right and 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 it is interesting uh you know what there is a lot of conversations and descriptions about near-death experiences and all. 
But there's also what people call shared death experiences. Mm. And yeah. so sometimes these are experiences that the people who are in the room with the pe- person who's passing away, they have them and can collaborate that they had the same experience uh, at the same time. And, yeah. and that, that's something that happened to me. Um, uh, my wife and I were, were there uh, with her mom. And what was interesting is we were just moving the mom from the assisted living to the more intensive nursing care in the big facilities that weekend. And so yeah. we'd gone over to the town to help make that happen along with her uh, oldest sister. But right as we're getting ready to leave, so there's no indication that her mom was gonna pass away. She was, we were just moving her, but her mom was one of those people who said she never wanted to live in the nursing care area. She just had a, you know, just incredible distaste for that idea. But by then, our mom was kind of a little bit out of it and in a lot of pain and all that kind of stuff. So we had to make the move. Anyway, so we get to the end. We've moved her all over. We've got everything taken care of. Now my wife and I announced that we have to get back on the road and head home. And suddenly, her mom sits up in bed like a four-year-old child might. And, and this is a woman who had all this pain and stenosis in her back and everything. Mm-hmm. And it was really weird. That was weird first, just to see her mom sit up like a four-year-old. And so I bent down to to kiss Nona goodbye. And suddenly, as I bent down to kiss her, there's this brilliant light shooting out of her face. And it it was like she had swallowed, you know, a 60-watt light bulb. There's all this light shooting out of her face. And I thought, whoa, that's that's weird. And then her her daughter, my wife, uh, bends down to kiss her mom goodbye. And when we both are out in the hallway, I turned to my wife and I didn't want to lead her on. I said, did you experience what I just experienced? And my wife said, you mean the light coming out of her face? And I said, blankety right, the light came out of her face. It was totally wild. We get in the car, start driving home. Uh, Three hours later, we get a phone call and her mom had passed away uh, while her sister was there with her. So again, this is a shared death experience, you know, we're not having the experience because we're shutting down or we're deprived of oxygen or we're anything. We're having this because we're in the presence of someone who's getting ready to pass. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's an incredible experience. And as well, the sitting up, that's like terminal lucidity. That's uh, another big part of the, you know, end of life experiences, which is fascinating. It's like, it happens, uh, I think fairly frequently. I mean, I obviously can't put a number on it, but yeah, people will be like comatose or in a horrible condition and unresponsive. And then just suddenly sitting up communicative, you know, life back in their face, all that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's it's, incredible. It's, it's, it's extraordinary when you start to hear the stories and all and and kind of see the commonalities and there's kind of common threads that move throughout these near-death experiences and other thing and it is really wonderful when you hear the reports of people who come back from it and all that kind of stuff because again oftentimes they're changed people as a result of that yeah yeah definitely but no, that's amazing. I'm actually going to be talking to somebody who's a, a kind of an expert in the field of shared dreams, like, and in a couple of months. So that that should be that should be cool because I find that really fascinating. And I don't think you have to be like at the bedside. I, mean, I think it's most common. 
but I think it can be remote as well. I think you can be kind of going about your daily life and somebody that passes that you don't even necessarily know are passing can just kind of appear to you. And sometimes you can go halfway with them and then come back like in a kind of spiritual realm or, or, or it can be something more similar to what you had, but yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Last time we spoke a little bit about healing and, and in the dreams, like physical healing, even, which kind of blew me away at the time. I was, it was, it was pretty wild to hear, hear you talking about that and telling me some experiences of that. Um, but I just wanted to talk about, yeah, what are the possibilities do you think with physical healing in a lucid dream and, uh, and how much evidence do you think there is for its reality? Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, I, I think, um, science, uh, psychology the science of lucid dreaming has basically accepted that 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 people can use lucid dreaming to resolve recurring nightmares and uh and there's a lot of or a fair amount of evidence to this effect oftentimes therapists can teach people having having recurring nightmares to just become lucid once and then their nightmares basically cease mm. and, and so this idea of emotional healing for lucid using lucid dreaming for emotional healing uh, definitely has some scientific acceptance. Now, when it comes to physical healing, I think the proof of the concept exists in the work of Stephen LeBurge. And, and just to explain to people listening, so so these are some of the experiments that Stephen LeBurge did. He had people become lucidly aware in the sleep lab, and before before they went to sleep, he would put sensors around their forearms, and he would tell them, when you become lucid, in the lucid dream, I want you to signal you're lucidly aware so, so we see that, know you're lucid. Then I want you to squeeze your fist in an alternating pattern, left, right, left, right, left, right. So we'll see if these sensors pick up any movement in your forearms while you're in the lucid dream state. And so the people would sleep, they'd signal with their eyes, hey, I'm lucidly aware in here, I'm beginning to experiment. And then in the lucid dream, they would clench their fists, left, right, left, right. And the sensors would pick up muscle movement in a left-right pattern during that lucid dreaming segment. So basically it showed that the lucid dream affected the physical body. That's what it showed. He did the same experiment with respiration. And again, what they did in the lucid dream breathing affected the physical body. He did the same thing, uh, having them lucidly aware and singing and all of a sudden the right hemisphere became more active, which is what would happen in the waking state. Then he had lucid dreamers do counting and arithmetic and their left hemisphere became more active, which is what would happen in, in, the, in the waking state. So again, what it shows is that the lucid dream event affected the physical body. Mm -hmm. And that's just all out there. So now what's happening, especially in my book, my first book came out in 2008, 2009, and I have an entire chapter on healing and physical dreams or using, I'm sorry, healing and lucid dreams, using lucid dreaming to promote, promote physical healing. And the, I include about a dozen great examples. And then I include two or three examples where nothing, where it didn't result in any change. And I kind of show the difference between how the lucid dreamer responded. But since that time, I've gotten a lot of um, lucid dream accounts of people who used it to cure physical ailments. And oftentimes they were ailments that the doctors had given up on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when your doctor tells you, well, the drugs aren't gonna work, the, there's nothing I can do for you. You know, that, that's really a powerful moment I imagine in someone's life because then they're kind of on their own. 
But some of these yeah. people got into lucid dreaming and used lucid dreaming. Sometimes it didn't happen in the first lucid dream attempt. It might have taken two or three attempts before a profound physical change occurred. But um, I do want to tell the readers that here uh, later this month, we'll have a, a new issue, the June 2023 issue of Lucid Dreaming Experience magazine come out. And in there, I interview a young guy named Jose who had a really traumatic brain injury. And the doctor basically told him, uh, within a year, you're going to be dead, and there's nothing we can do about it. And so this young guy, Jose, who I interview, decides to read about lucid dreaming, learn about lucid dreaming, healing, uh, gets my books and, and some others. And he has a profound experience of lucid dream healing. And that occurred five years ago. And so he went blue past the doctor's um, uh, dire prognosis. And he said, also, the other great thing was all the pain and stuff that he had in his physical body also disappeared after the lucid dream healing event. So again, um, there, this is a whole new area that I think someday science will get into the idea of using lucid dreaming to promote physical health. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating, though. Um, and I recently spoke to Bill Bankston. I don't know if you're familiar with Bill Bankston. Um, yeah, so you're, you're familiar with his healing technique, which is fascinating. He's getting some really interesting results. And, you know, if something like that is possible, then absolutely why not in the lucid dream? And to go even further back, um, you know, we just got to look at the placebo effect, right? The placebo effect is the, the mind or whatever influencing the body. And if we can do that in the waking state, then it, it kind of feels logical that in a lucid dream, it would be either the same or even more powerful. So it's just, um, it's really interesting. Do you think it's also possible to heal somebody else via a lucid dream, not well, just yourself? I, I, I'm going to jump on, uh, on your previous, uh, point, uh, before getting to that point. So, so one thing, um, Lucid dreamers talk about living lucidly, where, where you take what you learn in the lucid dream state and transfer it to the waking state. Mm -hmm. And and this is the way that I healed myself of hay fever. So, so uh, you have to imagine that every August and September, for, for about 10 or 15 years, I'd have the most horrible hay fever. I could barely breathe. I could hardly sleep at night. You know, my nose was all full of whatever my sinuses were all clogged up it was a real disaster every august and september but then about 10 or 12 years ago when i wrote my first book i said well gosh uh, maybe i should use what lucid dreaming has taught me about the way the mind works in order to heal myself mm -hmm. and so i started a three-step process based on what i learned in lucid dreaming and and healed myself of hay fever and so you don't have to be a lucid dreamer to do this. You just have to follow the process. This is what I did. Every time I began to think about hay fever or fear August and September, I became mindfully aware of it. I noticed that that was going on in the back of my mind. So first I became aware. Then the second thing I did, I stopped that negative thinking. I said, no, not this year. And then the third thing I did, which was the most important thing, I decided to tell my unconscious what I wanted to experience. And I would say, this year, I want to breathe easily and naturally. So every time I thought about hay fever, no, 
not this year. This year I breathe easily and naturally. Television commercial come on. Hay fever season's coming. Prepare. Take our drugs. I say, no, not this year. This year I'll breathe easily and naturally. The first year I had a 70% reduction in symptoms. The next year I had a 90% reduction. The next year after that, 95% reduction. And after that, I basically no longer had any sense of hay fever in August and September. So, so it's, it's not that I'm denying that pollen exists. It's not that I'm denying that for 15 years I had trouble with hay fever. It's just that I told myself at deep levels, this year I'll breathe easily and naturally. So again, I think anyone could use this three-step process, notice it, say no, and then you have to tell yourself where you want to go. And that's the most important thing. This year I'll breathe easily and naturally. So whatever it is, you could adopt this technique and bring it into your life. You don't have to be a lucid dreamer. Do you think it's more the intent or the belief? Just uh, in, a, in a kind of, in a nutshell, what's your, your gut feeling on that? You know, I, I think it's the beliefs or the ideas. A belief is a habitual idea. And so now if you give your unconscious a new idea that, oh, I breathe easily and naturally, then you circumvent the previous belief that, hay fever is going to destroy my ability to breathe and all. You circumvent that and go around it and give the unconscious the new idea, the new uh, direction of where we're going. Do you think but you, you have, have to, to do it. You really it? have to, you have to be mindfully aware. Do you think you have to fully, fully believe it or will just kind of your own conscious repetition kind of do the job for you and eventually you'll start to, to believe it? Well, I, I think the conscious repetition is really important because that's basically what a belief is. You've just affirmed something in your mind over and over and over, and then it's basically a belief. Mm -hmm. And once you've affirmed it so many times, you don't even notice it because you believe it. And obviously it's real and true. But when you start to see it as, as just another belief that you have, you know, and you can change the belief that that's very, really helpful in, in the process. But again, it's not stopping the belief, it's redirecting the belief. This year, I breathe easily and naturally. Yeah. I'm not denying anything. I'm just saying, I'm not going to have that experience anymore. This year, I'm going to breathe easily and naturally. Because a lot of times, I think people get into a big fight. Oh, I don't want to have that belief. And it's just a big resistance struggle. You haven't told your unconscious mind where you want to go. You got to tell it where you want to go if you ever plan to get there. And so that's the important thing. You've got to tell your mind what body experience you want to have yeah and so yeah to take that a little bit further do you think it's possible have you have you ever come across any um any accounts of people healing somebody else because because it's one thing healing yourself but healing somebody else is is obviously different yeah in in my uh, first book lucid dream and gateway to the inner self uh in the chapter on healing i i bring up some experiences that ed kellogg shared with me of um working with folks. And so one thing he always did and felt very important, he always received their approval to try lucid dream healing of another person, of that person. He, he always got their approval first. Mm -hmm. So it, it, so he got their approval before he proceeded. And, and he just felt on an ethical basis, you had to have that kind of go ahead in order yeah. to proceed. And um, he had some interesting experiences. Uh, there's a gentleman, I, I think he had emphysema, and he had himself on oxygen. Uh, 
I don't know if it's 24 hours a day or what it was, but in a lucid dream, Ed came and, and sent healing energy to him. And it was interesting to see the lucid dream account and, and all. And, uh, and the gentleman reported that he no longer needed to use uh, oxygen and, and went on that way. I, maybe he used it for an hour or two at night. I can't recall the specifics. But basically, he showed a dramatic improvement. And, and so Ed had uh, two or three examples of that. It, w it felt interesting, though, to receive one time a, a friend of his sent an example. And uh, we wrote this up, uh, or she sent in an, an article to the Lucid Dreaming Experience magazine. Her, her name is Jenny. She, she uh, uh, acted as a professional social worker. But anyway, what had happened, her father uh, developed leukemia. And so the doctor said, your leukemia has gotten to the point now where we have to do chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And so she asked her father, would he mind if in a lucid dream she tried to heal him? And he, he said he, he would be very happy for that uh, because he didn't want to undergo chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So anyway, she becomes lucidly aware in a mall. She remembers that she really wanted to heal her father. She calls him up on her dream cell phone, uh, asking for him to appear. He appears in the mall and basically in the lucid dream, she asks for her father uh, to receive a healing, to, to be totally healed. What was interesting is the next time they did blood work on her father, suddenly his blood work had totally changed and he no longer had the hallmark, the characteristics of leukemia. So then they ordered a CAT scan, and now when they did the CAT scan, not only did he not have leukemia, but this mass that, that he had, they had seen on his liver in previous CAT scans no longer existed. Because again, the woman just asked for a healing. She didn't ask for a healing from leukemia and specify it. She just asked for a healing. And so it was interesting to see that this other issue also disappeared. And her father went on to live for, I don't know, five or six or seven more years. Uh, before uh, passing away but again it's interesting when you see these kind of um, changes it, it was funny too the woman tried to tell the doctor she, she asked do you want to know how my father got healed and the doctor said no because the doctor didn't want to hear any you know uh you anything know, to threaten or, his beliefs or, or any woo-woo stuff i mean i mean the doctors you know they have their belief channel they're in yeah and they have all this medical science and they, they don't want to hear something that doesn't fit in to, to that box. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, this question is from one of my patrons, Jimmy the Earthling. I'm going to read it word for word. Uh, Mr. Wagoner, if you are familiar with it, could you please elaborate on the phenomenon often called early awakening, in which the dreamer has a dream in exact detail and sequence just before waking of the events that will unfold in real life just after waking? Thank you for your time. Yeah, that, that that's interesting. Um, I I think it occurs, um, and, and it's somewhat similar to telepathic dreaming, where you where you dream of some event that's happening in real time, and, and you wake with that, and, and then you discover that oh yes, um, that event you were dreaming about it has occurred. But but the early awakening phenomenon. Uh, I, I'll give you an example of, of how funny it can be sometimes. So uh, in waking life, um, my wife and I had our first cat, a, a little Abyssinian cat that we got probably when it was two months old or something like that. 
This cat was one of those cats who wouldn't let you hold it. If you picked it up, it would scratch you so much that you'd have to let it down. So, so for about a year and a half, we'd had this cat and we'd never been able to really, you know, pick it up and hold it. Anyway, so I'm in the sleep state and suddenly I see our cat, Penny, sitting on our blue carpet outside our, our front, our bedroom door. And, and it says to me in a little cat voice, would you like to know how I want to be held? And I, I said, sure. At this moment, I kind of became lucidly aware. I said, sure, a talking cat. Sure, show me how you want to be held. Yeah. And so it explained to me that I, I needed to put my arm out like this, and then it mm -hmm. would get its haunches here at the rear and put its arms up here at the front, and it wanted to be held like that. That basically I didn't hold on to it like that, that I let it, you know, basically um, rest in my arm like that. And I thought, you, you little funny talking cat, this is, this is wild. So I woke up from the dream, and like your caller uh, states, there's my cat sitting exactly where it was in the dream experience that I just woke up from. And so this is what I did. I put out my arm like that, and the cat immediately jumped into my arm. And I thought, this is too wild. And so I walked <laughs> down to the breakfast table to show my wife, and she goes, how'd you get the cat to let you hold it? And I said, it came in a dream and told me how it wants to be held. And, and after that, I realized that this cat was so smart that sometimes I would explain to it in the waking world, just like we're talking now, a game or something and how you play the game. And then we would go play the game or like the cats, uh, I'd put them outside on leashes and, and outside the front door. And I told the cat, when you want to be let inside, just flash the front door in my mind. And when I see the front door, I'll come down and let you in. And so I'd be up there in my second floor working in my office doing office stuff. And all of a sudden, here to the left side, I'd see a flash of the front door and I'd run down and, and there would be the cat looking at the front oh, door right. wanting to come inside. But, but again, uh, early awakenings uh, are definitely an interesting phenomenon. And I think they kind of show again this interconnected nature of the universe. Yeah. So yeah, tell me a little bit more about your psychic communications with your cat. Have you had an, is that like, how frequently did that happen? Was that like a, you know, once every now and then it would happen or, or was it like a genuine daily thing where you, uh, you, know, you would get this image yeah, it, of the door? It wasn't daily. Uh, it, it, it was oftentimes uh, to the point. Um, so, uh, so, so here, here's another funny thing that happened with the cat is that, so again, it, it's a young cat. And I was working out of my home. And the problem with having a cat in your home while you're working in your home office is a lot of times uh, when I'm trying to type on the computer, it has to walk across the keyboard, you know, and screw everything up. Or I'd be on the phone talking to an important client. And then the cat at that moment would have to start to go, Row! you know, or, or do something weird. And, and so here's what I began to do. I would throw the cat out of my office in the morning. You know, I'd go up to my office, the cat would follow me, I'd throw the cat out and I'd shut the door. And then when I'd open the door uh, at noon to go have lunch, there would be the cat sitting right outside of my office door. And so one night I'm in the dream state and this little cat comes up to me and in a little cat voice says, would you play with me? And I thought, oh my God, this cat feels neglected. It, it wants me to play with it. And so I thought, okay, if this cat can show up in a dream and 
make a request basically for me to play with it, uh, then this cat's a little bit more smarter than I thought. And so the next day, uh, I told the cat, I go, look, I have to work in the office. You can't come into the office, but at 1130, we'll play. And so, so at 1130, I opened up the door. There's the cat. I said, okay, we're going to play a game called tag. Here's how it works. I touch you and I go run and then you have to touch me and then you go run and then I got to touch you. That's how you play tag. And anyway, I go, boom, tag, you're it. And I go running down the house towards the basement. The cat chased me the entire way and it just snaps, you know, just touches my, uh, my ankle. And then it turns the other way, goes running because we're now playing tag. We played tag for about 10 minutes. I was blown away by how sharp this cat was that it that it actually knew how to play tag but anyway the, there were there were other incidents in life where uh sometimes i couldn't figure out what the cat wanted and i would basically sit down like a little child and i explained to it like one time it was scratching itself and people said oh your your cat has an allergy we changed all the food like five times couldn't get the cat to stop scratching finally i told the cat i go look i don't know what's going on you know what's going on I'm going to give you yogurt every day that you stop scratching. I'll give you your favorite treat, yogurt, if you stop scratching. Just stop the scratching because it's driving us crazy. And I give it yogurt every day and it stops scratching itself. So, so again, I think there's more to this kind of animal uh, communication kind of thing. And in lucid dreams, when you do it, it's, it's really a mind blower. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I've got a few questions left, Robert, and I don't want to keep you much more than kind of 10, 15 minutes. So maybe we're going to have to go into like a kind of quick fire mode, if that's okay with you. Sure, sure. Um, some of them maybe you can answer in like a word or two and some of them a little bit longer, um, but we'll see how far we can get. So last time we spoke a little bit at length about precognitive lucid dreams, you, you shared some fascinating experiences of your own, um, such as around, uh, I think, September the 11th and, and a few others, uh, maybe one in terms of somebody needing to borrow some money something like that maybe that wasn't precognitive but it was the same kind of idea um anyway i was just how common is it for people to have precognitive lucid dreams how frequent do people contact you and say wow i, I dreamt about this and then it happened or that kind of thing and i know you can't give me an exact percentage but just a rough idea yeah. not terribly common um a lot of times when you make a request in a lucid dream for information about future sometimes you'll get a symbolic response Mm -hmm. And so you don't get that kind of straightforward, yes, no, or here's the number. So it's not exactly common. I, I, I definitely get some uh, every year. People send me some incredible stories of, of getting future information in a lucid dream. But, but I can't say it's really common. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Have you ever tried to, and I'm kind of thinking about Stanley Krippner's dream telepathy experiments. Have you ever tried to telepathically send or receive information while you were lucid dreaming? Yeah, you know, uh, I, back in the early days of, of the internet, uh, there was this uh, one group out of the Netherlands who was a bunch of lucid dream uh, people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, my publicist asked me to join a group like that in order to, you know, kind of become more known in the lucid dreaming community. And anyway, uh, you know, what, one time somebody was making fun of sh shared dreaming or something like that. And I, I, mm -hmm. I said, no, you know, that shared lucid dreams occur and 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 the, they replied well, what's the mechanism and I, and I said you know i think the mechanism is dream telepathy and oh dream telepathy that's crazy that's crazy and i go nope nope um, 
you know, I'll, I'll show you how dream telepathy works. Uh, you get, you get somebody who's going to get the images and you get a fair witness and a sender. You have to have a sender who I can work with and, uh, and I'll, I'll show you dream telepathy. And so we began to do dream telepathy experiments. Finally, the, the guy who had collected the images to give to the sender who was sending to me and, and I'd report all my dreams the next day after the event, they were blown away. They were blown away. And finally, people in the forum began to complain that I was just showing off. So, so it was no longer an issue of could you get information outside of your own knowing telepathically. It's like, oh, now you're showing off. And so, you know, uh, stop it. And so that's, that's when we stopped after about four times. But, but the young guy who set it all up, he was a complete doubter. And after he saw me nail uh, uh, about four of these dream telepathy experiments, he, he was really just blown away. He said, this isn't supposed to occur, but it occurs. So anyway, one thing that I would say about the interconnected oneness is I think there's telepathy behind the scenes, that telepathy is occurring all the time. Yeah. And it's, it's not anything that you have to, it's, it's not anything that you have to be psychic or anything to pick up. It just occurs all the time, but most of us are just unaware of it. Or we have a feeling or we have kind of an inner knowing, but our ego mind kind of pushes it off to the side. Mm. It's happening all the time. Yeah. Intuition, gut feelings, that kind of thing. Um, have you had, I mean, you've mentioned a couple already. Have you had any other extraordinary psychic experiences while you're awake? And uh, I guess another kind of question I'll tag on. Do you think lucid dreaming can help people to have more of those kind of experiences in the waking state? You know, I, I had a strange one about four or five years ago. Uh, um, these people invited me, they were doing a documentary, you know, about life-changing experiences and they got together a group of people and they're going to have teachers help them have life-changing experiences. And they asked me to come and, and help them with lucid dreaming and having life-changing experiences. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll fly down to Arizona and, and do this at this retreat uh, center. Anyway, my larger awareness, one day I'm, I'm driving to the grocery store and my larger awareness tells me someone is going to die at this event. And, 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 I, and I'm like, no, no, I don't want anyone to die. No, no, I don't, want to, I don't want to be in that probability where someone dies. But I had this sense that, oh, my God, someone's going to die during this event. I almost wrote the people who were producing the documentary. I almost thought about sending them a letter, you know, uh, dear so-and-so, someone's going to die at your event. But, but then I thought how crazy that would sound, you know, that, that would just sound but like, like the person they invited was actually losing it. Anyway, we get there, we have the whole event. You know, I have this in the back of my head. Um, we do this um, uh, Indian ceremony where you're in a, um, what do they call that? A, you're in a tent that, that they heat all up. Um, yeah, I can't picture the word, but I, I think I see what you mean. Okay. Right? It, anyway, so, so after that event, and that was really an intense event, one of the guys, the, the largest guy in the group, he just fell over like a log. He, he basically fainted after the event. He, he was, had gotten so hot. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe that was the guy. And he would have moved into a probability where, where uh, no one's going to die. You know, but, but this guy got close. Anyway, it was probably a night. The next night, I'm in the dream state. And this guy shows up and he says, um, my name is Jim. And I want you to know that I've just died. And I go, I go okay, Jim, is... is are you okay with that? And he goes, Oh yeah, yeah, I'm fine with it. 
but I just wanted you to know that I've died. And I go, okay, Jim, you know, I, I understand that you've died and, and that everything's okay. And he basically said a little bit that he realized that this was the best time for him to go. And so he's going, I said, great, great, more power to you. And, and I woke up. I go to my event that morning and me and the group are having this incredibly powerful experience, but none of the camera people are there and, and the organizers of the event aren't there. And what happened? Overnight, the cameraman named Jim passed away in his sleep. And they found him in the morning, uh, passed away in his sleep. And this guy was kind of a famous uh, mountain climber in the area. There's mountain climbing trails named after the guy. You know, he's real strong and muscular and probably, I don't know, 60 some years old or whatever. Yeah. And, and I told him, I said, he appeared to me in the dream state last night and told me that he realized this was his time to go. But again, you know, who, who would ever expect something like that? And uh, yeah. to, get, to get like three months notice that this was going to occur. And ex again, exactly, I didn't know who it was or how it was going to occur, but, but it happened. Yeah, wow, that's, that's amazing. Um, just in a couple of, again, just in like a minute or two, have you got any kind of really brief bits of advice for beginners, A, to, to lucid dream, um, but B, who want to have more kind of extraordinary dreams in the sense of precognitive, be able to heal t telepathic communication, communicating with deceased loved ones, that whole kind of bag of, of extraordinary things. So a little bit of advice on either side would be great. Just brief. right. Uh, you, you know, general advice for beginning lucid dreamers, um, there's a lot of good information and a lot of junk out on the internet. And, mm -hmm. and what, what I'd really encourage you, if you really have a deep interest in lucid dreaming, for God's sakes, buy a book by an experienced lucid dreamer that has, you know, hundreds of, of five-star ratings, you know, on, on Amazon or whatever. You know, do, do yourself a favor. Don't sit there and just click from video to video. That, that's what I'd suggest. Also, it helps to uh, read about lucid dreaming, kind of get your head engaged. And, and that's why I do that free online magazine, The Lucid Dreaming Experience. You can Which read reader-submitted lucid dreams and, and all that. And it just helps if your mind is involved in lucid dreaming, then your dreams will start to get involved in lucid dreaming. Yeah. Um, for more experienced people, I think it really helps to understand how your beliefs can be limiting. And uh, sometimes in my own lucid dreams, I had experiences where dream figures would ask me to meet with a committee. And basically at the end of it, they would show me my limiting belief that was keeping me from growing. And so you, you have to realize that a lot of times you think you're on the top of the mountain and lucid dreaming, but I'll tell you, you're just on a plateau. There's a bigger top of the mountain further on. And when you get to the top of that, then there'll be a bigger one further down. Lucid dreaming is really a long path. It's a, it's really a, you grow by doing, by learning, by, it's kind of a meritocracy in that way and so you just got to keep going with it cool i'm going to challenge you by answering this one in like a minute or two the next two questions there'll be a bit of a challenge to answer them in a minute or two but just do whatever you can with it so the first one i'm interested to know in your opinion why is dreaming and in particular lucid dreaming so powerful and so important and uh, and and even so underestimated so, so uh, dreaming and lucid dreaming connect us with a different part of the self. And we think that the ego and waking self created the unconscious or the subconscious. It's actually the other way. The unconscious and the subconscious created the waking and the ego self. 
And so when you get down to your true place of power, your true source energy, then you have the capacity to make real change in your life. Awesome. That was a good job. And what about this one? How do we make sense of the dream world? And I'm thinking in terms of, I think everybody would acknowledge that there's some elements that seem like utter nonsense. I don't know whether you ascribe to the fact they are nonsense or whether they're like something, you know, sensical, hidden in nonsense. But anyway, we have elements that seem like nonsense. We have elements that are probably emotional unpacking. We have learning. We have precognitive dreams, telepathic dreams, all these other kind of elements, um, things that prepare us for things, things that help us get over things, but always with that element of nonsense as well and confusing. The, so how do you make sense of it? So... So, um, you know, we're all familiar with our computers and, and cell phones that operate mm -hmm. on a special programming language. Programmers understand the programming language and they can make magical things occur by virtue of using and understanding that language. And that's how it is with dreaming. Dreaming occurs in a symbolic language. And why does it use a symbolic language? Because symbols can carry enormous amounts of meaning, just like a picture can have a thousand a thousand words, that's, that's how dreaming is. So what you gotta do is get with the program, get with the dream language, begin to understand it if you want to really mine the treasures of dreaming and lucid dreaming. Yeah, awesome. Um, I'll ask you two kind of almost one word answer kind of questions that you can give me very, very quick answers for. Um, so firstly, have you ever been to Spoon and not in a dream in, in real life? In Say that life? again. Have you ever managed to bend a spoon or even tried to bend a spoon in waking life? Yes, I have. You have. Nice. How many times? Once or, or multiple? Just once. And I asked the spoon to bend itself. I didn't actually bend the spoon. It's just later when I came back to it, it was bent over. Oh, really? And is there any chance somebody could have got to it? Or No, the only thing I could have thought is that perhaps the spoon got so heated that it just uh, started to fall over. But you didn't leave it like in the oven or anything, did you? Where? No, no, no. In the sun? Not in the sun. I it was in it was in a car, and and I, I told the spoon to bend over, and and then when I got back from the uh, trip, I was on to a conference or something. Here was the spoon bent over, and and in a big way enough to convince you that that was something. Enough to be bent, yeah. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, again, a kind of really, really quick answer. A recent thing you posted in, I think, the magazine was that you interviewed a blind lucid dreamer. Before I go any further, was it, were they blind since birth? Or yeah, they were. They were yeah. blind since birth, and and uh, they could only they could tell a little bit when they were in a situation where light existed, because because they could tell there was a little bit of light, but otherwise their visual field was dead. Okay, so they, what and in the dream, did they see? You know, what what was the visuals like in the dream? No, so so what what happened? Uh, the way they became lucid the first time, they felt the blankets moving on their bed, and they thought, "What's happening here? I'm in I'm in bed. I went to sleep. Oh, this is a dream. I'm dreaming this." Mm -hmm. And so, by the feeling of movement, they became lucid lucidly aware. Wow! And then, so again, were the dreams mostly non-visual rather than seeing things? Mostly non-visual. There's one beautiful thing in the dream where the person uh, begins to experience that something exists above their head. And, and when they reach up in the lucid dream to grab it, it's, it's a piece of wood. Basically, the lucid dream provided a cane that, that they could move. Mm. But, but this cane would fly you to wherever you needed to go. Oh, wow. and, and, and so it's kind of funny how the lucid dream or the unconscious mind created kind of basically a cane 
but it's a lucid dream cane that had lucid dream powers. That's super cool. I was kind of hoping that they would have seen, you know, like nature and trees even and described it perfectly, even though they've never seen it in real life or waking you know, life. But that's a problematic thing that they don't have any context. And so even no. if they did happen to say it, it was like, you know, I don't, I don't know what that was. It's, Brown it's, stick with a group. But even that, yeah, I know it's a, it's, it's a tough one, but that's, that's kind of the next best thing. The magic lucid dream uh, cane. That's brilliant. Um, any updates again in, in very, very brief, any updates on book three? You know, uh, so someday I'm going to come up with book three that kind of explains uh, some interesting things that my lucid dreams hinted at, but I, I never saw coming. And, and that's the beauty of lucid dreaming is, is it shows you that this inner intelligence actually knows far much more than the waking conscious self does and sometimes kind of clues you in to future events. Yeah, but the book isn't imminent or anything like that. Don't have a date. Not yet. imminent. I I I need uh, s s some time to keep writing and and really some free time. Just I can let yeah. go of everything to start writing. Yeah, I got you. Okay, Robert. Look, last thing I'm going to ask you is just if you have any words or a brief message for anybody that's watched or, or listened today. You know, uh, lucid dreaming is a long path, so so don't be worried if it takes time and it takes a while and you just have one or two lucid dreams a month. You can move along. It's really important to have lucid dreams of quality and not worry so much about quantity. Cool. Thank you so much for this, Robert. You've been generous with your time yet again. And, and I, I love talking about this stuff. It's so fascinating. And I just I just really want to have more lucid dreams. I did have one after we spoke last time. So hopefully I'll have a few more this time and, uh, and, and get back on that. Because, um, yeah, it's just incredible. Thank you so much. And, and I wish you all my best. Uh, thanks, Ben. Great talking with you. Thank you to Robert Wagner for talking with me again. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and will proceed to have many lucid dreams. Please see the description for relevant links and subscribe to continue unraveling the universe with us. If you want to help us keep making content, please consider contributing a small amount monthly via Patreon. Thank you.